quick question this morning. Uh, I'd love to see this by a show of hands. How many of you uh, feel pretty confident about wrapping presents, like, you know, wrapping your wife's present for Christmas? Feel pretty confident? Oh, wow, that's impressive. How many of you feel pretty incompetent in that? Yes, that's, I'm, I'm one of those. I'm realizing that I should have just gotten my wife one big present instead of four small ones. Because now the, the dilemma is how in the world I'm going to wrap it. Second question this morning. Uh, how many of you, and, and we'll, uh, these are the two options. You're either, uh, you either like to remove the paper from the present, from your present, you know, when you get it. You unwrap it, remove it, or you tear into it. You're either a remover or a tearer, right? So how many of you would say, when you unwrap your present at Christmas, on Christmas Day, you remove the paper? Oh, wow, there's a lot of removers. How many of you just tear the paper? Yes, I'm a tear. You remove people, um, just got to get into it, you know? <laughs> just get into the present, right? Uh, we probably don't need to save the paper, but maybe we should. I don't know. Just tear it. What I want to do this morning is I want to just get into this passage, right? I'm ready to rip it open and dive right in uh, to what we're doing here because there, there is so much here this morning. And it's, again, I said this last week, to be able to study this at Advent, honestly, for me, has brought fresh eyes on this and fresh eyes on Christ's incarnation that we're celebrating here at Advent to really see the mission that is here. Now, another question, last last. Last participation question, maybe, maybe last. Um, tell me, in our study of Matthew, which last week's our last week, what is the key thing of Matthew? What is Matthew trying to show us more than anything else? Who's the king? Exactly right. The kingdom of God. Jesus is king. It's all about the kingdom of God. And so right here, He's not changing that. Matthew 27, when he's looking at uh, describing the events of the crucifixion, Matthew has not changed the theme that he's intended all along through the entire gospel. And that is for us to see Jesus as king and for us to see the kingdom of God. So you'll notice, even when we read this, that the focus Matthew has is not on the details of the actual crucifixion itself. He doesn't give us the gory details about what went on. It really is just one phrase, and Jesus was led away to be crucified. What Matthew focuses on instead is the reign of King Jesus. Now, we don't often think of this, um, the idea that Jesus reigned from the cross. We've often thought of it in terms of, well, after the cross and then at the resurrection, Jesus reigned. But for the first three centuries, the church often talked about and used the phrase, Jesus reigning from the cross. And certainly that's what Matthew had in mind here, even as he describes the, uh, the, the events surrounding the crucifixion. So we're going to read verses 27 through 60. And what I'd like to do this morning, not that, not that any one particular part of God's word is more important than the other, but it's this particular event that is at the very center of who we are as human beings. I would love for us to stand all together as we read this scripture, as I read the scripture. Matthew 20, uh, 27, beginning at verse 27. Then the soldiers of the governor took Jesus into the governor's headquarters, and they gathered the whole battalion before him. And they stripped Jesus and put a scarlet robe on him, and twisting together a crown of thorns, they put it on his head and put a reed in his right hand. 
And kneeling before him, they mocked Jesus, saying, Hail, King of the Jews. And then they spit on him, and they took the reed and struck him on the head. And when they had mocked him, they stripped him of the robe and put on his own clothes on him and led Jesus away to crucify him. As they went out, they found a man of Cyrene, Simon by name. They compelled this man to carry his cross. And when they came to the place called Golgotha, which means place of the skull, they offered him wine to drink mixed with gall. But when Jesus tasted it, he would not drink it. And when they had crucified him, they divided his garments among them by casting lots. Then they sat down and they kept watch over Jesus there. And over his head, they put a charge against him, which read, This is Jesus, the King of the Jews. Then two robbers were crucified with him, one on the right and one on the left. And those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, You who would destroy the temple and build it in three days, save yourself. If you are the Son of God, come down from the cross. So also the chief priests with the scribes and the elders mocked him, saying, He saved others. He cannot save himself. He is king of Israel. Let him come down now from the cross, and we will believe him. He trusts in God. Let God deliver him now if he desires him. For he said, I am the son of God. And the robbers who were crucified with him also reviled him in the same way. Now from the sixth hour, there was darkness over all the land until the ninth hour. And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lemma sabachthani. That is my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders hearing it said, this man is calling Elijah. And one of them at once ran with a sponge filled with sour wine and put it on a reed and gave him to drink. But the other said, wait, let us see if Elijah will come save him. And Jesus cried out with a loud voice again and yielded up his spirit. And behold, the temple, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom, and the earth shook, and the rocks were split. The tombs also were opened, and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. And coming out of the tombs after his resurrection, they went into the holy city and appeared to many. When the centurion and those who were with him, keeping watch over Jesus, saw the earthquake and what took place, they were filled with awe and said, Truly, This was the Son of God. There were also many women there looking on from a distance who had followed Jesus from Galilee, ministering to him, among whom were Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of James and Joseph, and the mother of the sons of Zebedee. When it was evening, there came a rich man from Arimathea named Joseph, who was also a disciple of Jesus. He went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus, and Pilate ordered it to be given to him. And Joseph took the body and wrapped it in a clean linen shroud, and he laid it in his own new tomb, which he had cut in the rock. And he rolled a great stone to the entrance of the tomb and went away. Brothers, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Please be seated. Not only is Matthew's focus meant to show us that Christ reigns from the cross, But Matthew also is known uh, in the New Testament writings as the one who intentionally uses irony to show us the realities of who Christ is. And he certainly does that in what we have before us. Because while it might appear from an earthly standpoint that what we're looking at is the, is the, the, the lowest point of Jesus, the lowest point of his ministry, the, the place where it almost failed, That's what it seems like to just our earthly minds. 
But when you look at it from the perspective of heaven, understanding truly what was happening on a cosmic level, what you are looking at here is Jesus reigning from the cross. And so I want us to first see what Matthew intended us to see, and that is in verses 27 through 44, the paradoxical paradoxical power of the king. Two things that Matthew uses to help us see this. One is Old Testament fulfillment. Um, we're not going to take the time this morning, but we could have, we could have done the entire uh, study this morning just on the many different uh, Old Testament passages that Matthew references here, either quoted by Jesus or fulfilled by Jesus. And of course, also this irony of these things that are said about Christ that are actually the truth, that are actually the reality. But two things that I think stand out for us in verses 27 through 44. First of all, the power that's displayed by Christ in being the suffering servant of Isaiah 53. I do want you to turn in your Bibles to Isaiah 53. And this morning, we're actually going to turn several places. But I want us to see this because Matthew intended for us to see this. In in, uh, Isaiah, uh, there are many places in Isaiah where the... the, uh, The prophecy regarding Jesus uh, is shown, but certainly Isaiah 53 speaks to us about his role as a suffering servant. And look at verses 4 and 5. It says, Surely he that's to be Jesus, Christ, has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we have esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But Christ was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And by his stripes, we are healed. When you look back at what Matthew describes in uh, in the the suffering of Christ, um, you see, and he's intended to see, that Christ is displaying his power through being the suffering servant. Two things that I noticed as I was looking and meditated on these things. First of all, just that twice it talks about Jesus being mocked, that they, that they mocked him. Can you imagine? Can you imagine the, the restraint and self-control you would have to have to truly be not just the king of the Jews, but to be the king of kings, to be the king of the universe And to have a fake crown stuck on your head and a fake robe droped over your shoulders and a fake scepter put in your hand and to have these humans mock you and spit on you and hit you. What kind of power would it take to restrain yourself, to have self-control in that moment, to truly live out what it means to be the suffering servant in order that Brothers, that you and I would be saved. I'm astounded at that power. And then it goes on. It it, it says that they led him away, verse 31, and they led him away to be crucified. And then right away we see Simon of Cyrene um, being asked to carry Jesus' cross. It was custom then that though you you were beaten before you were taken to the cross, you were handed the cross beam and you had to carry it through the streets. That was part of the shame that was supposed to take place. But notice that Jesus is so weak in his incarnation, in his humanity. He is so weak that he cannot even carry his own cross. And somebody else has to carry it for him. We talked a little bit about this last week. Um, 
But it is an interesting question, isn't it, when you think about the incarnation of Christ and that Christ was fully God and yet fully man, and you see these moments of weakness, self-control, and it's hard for us to sometimes understand what exactly is it that Christ gave up in the incarnation? Did he give up his power? Did he give up part of his deity? Well, that can't be true because we know from Scripture he's fully God and fully man. Did he, you know, is he just giving up is he giving up part of his, uh, you know, his power in this moment, specific moment? No, he is always the all-powerful one. So how do we put those together? I love the way D.A. Carson describes it. What Jesus gave up in his incarnation was this. Not, he didn't give up his divine prerogative. He gave up his independent use of the divine prerogative. Jesus gave up not his divine prerogative as fully God to exercise whatever he wanted to. He actually gave up his independent use of the divine prerogative. What is he dependent on now? He's dependent on his father, his heavenly father. You see it all over the gospel of John, where John, where John describes Jesus saying, um, only those my father has given to me are mine. He says, I only teach you what the father has told me to teach you. And so here he is obedient to the father. He's the obedient son, even as he's being led away. Turn in your Bibles to Philippians chapter 2. Described right there for us perfectly. Again, the power of God. Philippians chapter 2. This is that great humility chapter. But notice the way Matthew describes it, even as we go back from Philippians 2. Philippians 2, and I'm just going to read verses 6 through 8. Who, this is Jesus, though he, Jesus, was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself, becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. What did, to whom did he become obedient? To the Father. So in the incarnation, Christ didn't have to, wasn't required of him. There's nothing, there's nothing lacking in Christ that would require him to be uh, in submission to the Father. He chose this role in order in the Godhead for there to be this plan of our salvation. And as you go back to um, uh, Matthew chapter 27, you're going to see this obedient son played out. And you're going to see his power described. So first of all, he's led away. But notice what he, he is, is the obedient son. And here's the irony that comes out in Matthew. Notice verse 40, the mocking. You who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself. Remember, Jesus is the one who had said, destroy this temple and I will build it again in three days. And of course, they were thinking, what? This huge temple? There's no way. But Jesus is describing himself because he now is for us the place of meeting between us and God. He is the one. Our, our life in Christ is what makes us the temple. He is that temple. And though they mock him, that's what Christ was doing. He was being obedient in order that he could be the one that would bring us to God. Notice what it also says in verse, verse 40. In one other place, uh, verse 43. If you are the son of God, and he was the son of God. He was the obedient son, being obedient to his father, even to the point of death. 
Verse 42, he saved others, he can't save himself. He's saving us right there. He is the Savior in that moment. Still in verse 42, he is the King of Israel. Let him come down. Or excuse me, he's the king of Israel. Yeah, let him come down from the cross and we will believe him. Brothers, he's not just the king of Israel. He's the king of kings in that moment. And then notice verse 43. He trusts in God. Let God deliver him now. Brothers, he was trusting God in that moment. Like no one ever has trusted God. He was completely committing himself in obedience to the Father. And you and I know when we just try to walk through a day trying to be obedient, what kind of power it takes to overcome temptation. And we know unless we have the Holy Spirit power in us, we can't do it. We're, we're, we're resting on the Spirit of Christ, the Holy Spirit, to give us the power to walk in obedience. Brothers, as, as we look at Christ here on the cross as the obedient son, it is an absolute display of his incredible power. It is his power that makes him the temple, that makes him the savior, that makes him the king of kings. It is in his power that he is trusting God. And while from an earthly standpoint, and even those mocking would have thought, well, there's, there's no power there. You can see what Matthew's trying to show us. Now, there's, this is the power of the king being displayed at the cross. Well, the second thing I want us to see in verses 45 through 49 is the extravagant payment of the king. It's amazing how great the cost of our salvation was. And it's not, it's not really to be found in the beatings, though they are, are brutal. It's not to be found in the mocking, though that was awful. It's not to be found just in the suffering, though that was great. It's not to be found in the cruelty of crucifixion. I think most of us know that in, in that time in human history, that was the cruelest form of death, of execution. And it was intended to shame you. And it was intended for you to suffer for a really, really long time. But it's not even in that that we see the extravagant cost. We see the cost in verse 46 in what Jesus cries out. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Verse 46 gives us the cost of our salvation. Gives us the cost to pay the debt of our sin. That cry out, that, that cry that Jesus makes, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Brothers, is not a cry of helplessness. It's not a cry of, 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 a, of, a, of a despair believing that God has uh, abandoned him. Rather, it's a cry understanding that the cost of our sin is separation from God, from the Father. The very thing that was most precious to Christ was union with the Father. I don't think there's a theologian that has ever walked the planet that has ever fully understood how in the world the Godhead could not be separated, and yet there was this separation in this moment. I don't know how to explain it to you either, brothers. All I know is that the cost of, of our sin, the payment for our sin, 
was for Christ to bear the full weight of God's wrath. And the full weight of God's wrath comes in a moment of separation in that intimacy. Again, I don't understand it. All I know is what Christ yelled on the cross there. And he was quoting Psalm 22. 22 verse 1, where David writes, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And where David experienced that as a man feeling alone and separated from God, Christ experienced it in a way that none of us will ever have to. In fact, as several have said throughout the centuries, Jesus cries, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? So you and I, brothers, never have to cry that. We never have to say that. Because Christ paid it, lived it, said it for us. Turn back to Isaiah 53. Isaiah 53, reading beyond verses 4 and 5. Isaiah says this in verse 6, All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him, Christ, the iniquity of us all. And that there on the cross is the moment. Remember the verse I gave us last week, 2 Corinthians 5.21. God made him, Christ, who knew no sin, to be sin for us, that in Christ we might become the righteousness of God. If we ever want to really understand how great our sin is, how great our sin is, look at verse 46, and you'll know how great your sin is. This was the payment, the extravagant payment of the the king to give up what was most precious to him, which was his father's favor, and to bear instead that wrath of God. Go on. I think Matthew wants us to understand in verses 50 through 53, the absolute victory of the king. The absolute victory of the king. Turn again to your, in your Bibles to Colossians. Or not turn again. Turn to Colossians. So just past Philippians. Turn to Colossians chapter 2. I love the way Paul describes the cross here. Colossians 2, verse 13. And you, that's us, who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all of our trespasses, By canceling the record of the debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in Christ. I love that. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in Christ. Where did he do that? Brothers, he did that at the cross on Golgotha. Not not in the resurrection. The resurrection does bring victory and displays the victory of Christ. But this moment that Paul is talking about happened in the cross. So instead of Jesus being in open shame, which that was, was intended with the cross, for people to hang there and, you know, 
you know, all, every, every and, and probably appropriately so, every picture, every sculpture we've ever seen of Jesus hanging on the cross always has him draped with some kind of loincloth. No, it was normal for people crucified to be crucified, men and women to be crucified completely naked. That was part of the shaming. And to nail there and to be nailed there and hang there. And the reason that the that the soldiers stayed around and watched was because they had learned that in crucifixions, often if they if they left too early before the person died on the cross, that maybe some loved ones or some people that are just feeling bad for the person who was crucified would come along and take them down from the cross because you didn't die right away. So the soldiers were saying, making sure that those three that were crucified were not going to be taken down from the cross. And there they are supposedly guarding this Jesus, this king of the Jews in his weakness, completely shamed, completely suffering. And they don't realize that at that moment, (laughs) Christ is disarming all the authorities and powers of the world and putting them to open shame in that moment says in verse 50, the way Matthew puts it is, and Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. But we know from John chapter 19 what Jesus said. Jesus cried out, it is finished. That's the moment. The way Matthew describes this victory here is in three ways. First of all, the victory comes in salvation from our sins because Jesus cries out, it is finished. I have done what I came to do. What is it that he came to do? You remember back, you know, last uh, uh, year, last um, fall, excuse me, last uh, January, when we studied Matthew chapter 1. In Matthew chapter 1, verse 21, uh, Matthew writes, She, that's Mary, will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. And now Jesus cries out, it is finished. What I came to do has been done. (laughs) And then notice what takes place after verse 50. And if you saw it in the Greek, it'd be even more clear. I think our ESV Bibles did a good job of translating it. But notice that all the things that happen about the curtain and the tombs and the people appearing, they're all in passive verbs. It's happening to them. It's not happening by them. This is the power of God being displayed in this moment. It's power being displayed by the salvation of our sins. It is finished. He's done it forever. This, the, the price has been paid. Paid. We don't pay again. There is no continuing sacrifice of Christ. Hebrews writes about Christ having paid for our sins and then sitting down at the right hand of the Father. He's done. The high priest is done. Salvation from our sins. And then verse 51, access to the Father. The temple veil torn. This is one of my favorite, favorite things that happens in the, in, the, in the power and the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. It says that the temple was torn from top to bottom into the temple veil, that veil that, that, that blocked the, the holy place from the holy of holies. 
And the Holy of Holies is where the Ark of the Covenant was. And if we went to, to Leviticus, we would read about the Day of Atonement. Day of Atonement was that one day a year where the high priest would go into, after making a sacrifice of one uh, goat and then a lamb, and then making, uh, putting the sins uh, of the people symbolically on this other goat and sending them out into the wilderness, um, he would walk in to the Holy of Holies and he would sprinkle blood on uh, the mercy seat, trying to uh, do what God says in order to make atonement for the whole sins of the people. And, and it was a terrifying day. <laughs> I mean, it was a, frankly, you didn't want to be the, the dude that went in. <laughs> because they were so um, knowledgeable about the holiness of God that they were aware that if I go in there in any way, that is not exactly the way God has described, I will be killed instantly. Nobody went in there except this one time a year. And, and so as a result of that, I don't know if you've heard this before, but they used to tie bells on the bottom of the robes of the priest of the robe who went in. And they'd also put a rope around his ankle. And the bells, the bells were tied there so that they could hear if the priest was still moving around and alive. Because <laughs> nobody was going to go in and check. And the rope around his ankle was to pull him out if they stopped hearing the bells, because nobody was going to go in and get him. <laughs> and yet, when Christ has paid the price, has been the Lamb of Atonement forever, that veil, and notice, I, Matthew wants us to see this, it's torn from top to bottom, not bottom to top. We haven't done anything. God has done something. And he's opened forever access. All of us, you, me, can walk into the Holy of Holies. We can be in the presence of our Father. We can speak to him and have fellowship with him without any fear. Without any fear. Because of what Christ has done. Access to the Father. And then in verses 52 through 53, we see that death is conquered. Man, that must have just rocked some people's worlds. <laughs> see grandma or great grandma show up at the house. <laughs> and I know some people say, well, why, you know, why, didn't, why didn't people talk about this? They did talk about it. <laughs> They went, around, they went around the Roman Empire telling people about the resurrection of Christ and that he is the one that has conquered death. They did talk about it. I think some of you know, just a few weeks ago, I was in the uh, Scandinavian Mecca, um, Rockford, Illinois, um, where both sides of my family grew up. Um, as my brother said, we were, we were there to, to, uh, to uh, bury uh, my mom. She had, we'd had a memorial service back uh, in October, and now in November, she was being buried there up in Rockford, Illinois. Um, and uh, as we were looking at the different gravestones all around us, um, there's every version. This, it was called the Scandinavian Cemetery. Like, that's not just me saying it was Scandinavian. Like, that's what they called it, the Scandinavian Cemetery. As we're looking around at all the gravestones, my brother and I, um, there's every version of son, like Eric's son, William's son, John's son, you know, Daniel's son, you name it, whatever your name is, 
there was a sun in that, in that cemetery, I promise. Or Quist, every, every version of Quist and every version of Berg, you know, Sunberg, Brainberg. There was a legitimately, we saw this, and this is my, we looked at one headstone, it said Broberg. <laughs> at that point, my brother said, I feel like they're just making up names here. <laughs> We're standing there with my father and just a very few relatives. Like I said, the memorial service had been in Chattanooga a month before that. And there were a few relatives who don't know Christ. And I had said to my dad, I said, Dad, do you want to say anything? I did the, I did the graveside. Do you want to say anything, Dad, today? And he goes, I, I don't think so. I got done. The graveside service is always really short. I got done praying, saying a benediction. And my dad said, hey, I want to say something. I'm like, I thought you might. He was so moved by the reality that there were people there who were mourning with no hope. And yet my father was there mourning as one who has hope. And he wanted to make it clear. My dad is a simple, straightforward guy. He's just a physical therapist who actually is a pretty good theologian, but just thinks he's a physical therapist. (laughs) And he got up there in front of a group of about 20, and he just said, I want you to know I'm going to be okay. I'm going to be okay. Because Christ has paid the price for the sins of my wife, and she is now present with him. And I'm going to be okay, but I'm only okay because Christ has conquered death. And that's all he said. I thought, what a, what a powerful place. There's no more powerful place to say that reality than to stand in a cemetery at the graveside of your spouse and affirm the testimony that Christ has conquered death. And brothers, the moment that it happened was right here. And Matthew wants us to see the absolute victory of the king. He has conquered death. And then finally, this morning, I want us to see in verses 54 and 61, the only right response to the king. We've seen his paradoxical power displayed in his suffering and being led away to the cross. We've seen the extravagant payment as he cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? We've seen his absolute victory when he says, it is finished. And the veil is torn from top to bottom. And access to the Father is made possible for us forever. And death is conquered What do you do? How do you respond to that? Well, there's two ways. One is this way the centurion did. It's described even more in detail or a little more in detail in the the gospel of Luke. But the centurion just says the truth. Truly, this was the son of God. In Luke, it says the centurion praised God. He worshiped. (laughs) That's what's taking place. What do you do when you see the cross? You see the power of the king reigning from the cross? What do you do? There's not much else to do but worship. That's the starting point. You fall on your knees and go, Lord, thank you. 
You are the son of God. You are the savior of the world. And the second thing is surrender. I know some of you are thinking, well, how do you get surrender from verses 57 through 60? And certainly in verse 59, Joseph took the body and wrapped it in a clean linen shroud. We also see in John chapter 19 that it wasn't just Joseph of Arimathea, but it was also Nicodemus. And both, and this is the Nicodemus of John chapter 3, both were members of the Sanhedrin and secret followers. In other words, they, 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 they actually believed in Jesus. And here they were, high, holy Jewish men who had surrendered their lives to Christ. How do we know that this surrender, or that it truly was a surrender? Because of what they do in verse 59. Brothers, it's during the Passover. Passover is not over. You could not touch a dead body or you were made unclean. And though these men had lived that tradition and represented that tradition because they were Pharisees in the Sanhedrin, because they had believed in Christ, because they had surrendered to Christ, they give all of that up. Like Paul, when he writes, hey, you know, let me tell you how great I was. A Hebrew of Hebrews, but I consider that rubbish compared to knowing Christ. And that's what these men, Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus, do in this moment. Christ is worth giving up everything. And so they, in complete opposition to their tradition, to what they understood it meant to be clean, touch the dead body of Jesus, hold it, take it down, wrap it up knowing that to the world's eyes, they are now unclean. They have now transgressed. Worship and surrender. Brothers, this is the way I'd like to end this morning. I'd like us, before I pray, for all of us to stand and to sing the doxology together in response to what the king did at the cross. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Praise Him all creatures here below. Praise Him above all heavenly host. Praise Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. Amen. Let's pray. Father, there is little else for us to do when we look at King Jesus reigning from the cross, making a spectacle of disarming the powers of darkness, putting them to shame. Nailing our debt to the cross and assuring us that it is finished. And so, because of Christ and his cross, we who put our faith in Christ bear the righteousness of Christ. And we stand here this morning in Christ. 
as men who are free and are forgiven. As men who have been invited into, adopted into the family of God. As men of whom you say you delight in. You rejoice over us with singing. And you quiet us with your love. And it's all because of what you have done. Nothing that we have done. So we stand in awe of you. Like John in Revelation. Like Isaiah before the throne. Like the centurion at the foot of the cross. Truly, you are the Son of God. Father, work this in our hearts and minds as we move through this Advent season. In the busyness of all that goes on, help us to keep our eyes fixed on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross. And may we find great joy in learning one more thing, just a little more, Father, about the incarnation. Pray this in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, amen. Amen.